welcome to 1867 and all that. Season 2, Episode 23, The Kingdom of Canada. It was August of 1866, and John A. Macdonald and other members of the cabinet ought to have been in London. The Nova Scotia and New Brunswick delegates had already sailed across the Atlantic and were in England waiting for the Canadians to arrive. Governor General Lord Monk was furious. He had already threatened to resign if the Canadians didn't get their act together and sail to London. Yet here were the Canadians gathering in the new parliamentary palace atop the Ottawa River, debating about the kinds of things you would exactly expect Canadians to fight over, schools and religion. It likely didn't help that John A. Macdonald was drunk, routinely and, if some were to be believed, to an incapacitating degree. We haven't talked extensively here about our founding Prime Minister's regular bouts of drunkenness, but for almost 20 years, from the mid-1850s to the mid-1870s, MacDonald definitely had a problem with the bottle. In the mid-19th century, this both was and wasn't a huge controversy. British North Americans drank copious amounts of alcohol, or at least some of them did. But others, as we saw with the early temperance advocate Leonard Tilley, wanted radical individual and social reform. They blamed alcohol for all range of social problems, from poverty to wife abuse. It's no coincidence, incidentally, that many women were such ardent temperance advocates and that the movement to win women the vote was directly tied to those who had also advocated for prohibition. They wanted individual temperance and, increasingly, society-wide prohibition. This was one of the most divisive social issues of the day. And through it all, MacDonald drank heavily and then recovered. He was incredibly able And even though it's clear that at points his drinking interfered with his political career, his many other skills saved his skin. There's even reason to think his ability to win friends over while sharing a drink helped him to gain allies, certainly with one Thomas Darcy McGee at any rate. You have likely heard some of the anecdotes about the time John A. was so drunk that he threw up in the middle of a political debate but then rescued the situation by apologizing and saying, I don't know how it is, but every time I hear Mr. J speak, it it turns my stomach. Or there's the time he responded to a reform heckler who accused him of drunkenness by saying, yes, but you'd rather have John A. drunk than George Brown sober. In August of 1866, though, John A.'s drinking threatened to erupt into a serious problem. You see, Victorian decorum held that Even though many might know unofficially about John A.'s problems, it simply wasn't done to talk publicly in print about them. But in August of 1866, the Globe newspaper decided to break the taboo. Now remember, the Globe's editor is George Brown. And this is where I need to mention something that I just haven't had time to deal with yet. George Brown the instigator of the great coalition government, the man whose joint committee and willingness to work with his enemies had started off the whole confederation process, well, he had resigned in disgust from the government. Brown 
actually resigned back in December of 1865, but we were so busy dealing with the Fenians and New Brunswick politics that there just wasn't a good place to mention it. Brown resigned for what seems, in retrospect, like the flimsiest of reasons. He was angry at the way the financial wizard of the government, Alexander Galt, was handling negotiations over the renewal or attempt to renew the Reciprocity Treaty. Galt had traveled to Washington without official sanction from cabinet and had, from Brown's point of view, screwed up Canada's and British North America's chances. Brown felt that Galt had been naive and was being manipulated by the Americans. And when the rest of the cabinet didn't fall into line behind Brown's point of view, Brown said he'd had enough and he quit. He seemed actually more than a little pleased with himself as he immediately telegraphed to his wife, I am a free man once more. So if you were a grade school teacher now writing a report card for little George Brown, it's hard not to think that you'd write something like, he doesn't play well with others. His resignation didn't mean that he no longer supported Confederation, for he did. But it did mean that by the summer of 1866, Brown was also sitting in Parliament in opposition and was unwilling to play nice. Hence, the stories in the Globe that criticized McDonald's drunkenness. Now, Brown dressed up the attack in the guise of stately interest, writing on how it had come to light that in the midst of the recent Fenian invasions, MacDonald, as minister of militia, no less, was so incapacitated as to be useless. So while Brown might not have wanted to discuss such a sordid issue, did he have any other option? Many felt he did, and even some loyal reformers felt Brown had gone too far. August of 1866, though, was a divisive time in Canadian politics. The Canadians, with the often drunken John A. at their head, remained in Ottawa to settle some difficult political issues. One reason to linger was a, a fear of another Fenian invasion, especially before the American elections which would come that autumn. Could they really be sure that American demagogues wouldn't throw support behind Fenians? The British actually rushed more troops across the Atlantic, although ironically it was discovered that one battalion arriving at Quebec was so full of Fenian supporters that it couldn't be trusted, so they shipped that group off to the West Indies instead. The Canadians were also busy with two legislative projects. The first was to create new constitutions for the provinces that would be created by Confederation, the provinces, of course, of Ontario and Quebec. The second program was more divisive. The government wanted to honor a promise it had made to lower Canadian Protestants. This group of government supporters, represented in cabinet by Alexander Galt, they were leery about Confederation. They knew that in a federal Canada, they would become a distinct minority in their own province. When the Canadas had joined together back in 1841, Lower Canada's British, mostly Protestant, community, they, well, they took strength from it, the links to Upper Canada. Now they would be on their own again, and the knot of tension centered on, what else, education. In early August, the government introduced a bill that guaranteed the rights of the Protestant minority in the new province of Quebec to their own continued separate schools. The school system in Canada East, what would become Quebec, it was different from that in the western section of the Canadas. The eastern system was specifically denominational. 
That is, there was a Catholic-run system of schools controlled largely by the Catholic Church. And there were also separate Protestant schools where the, where the local population warranted them. The Protestant minority wanted to ensure that this system would be safe in the new confederation, safe from any infringements by what would undoubtedly be a French Catholic-dominated provincial government. However, in what can only be called an entirely unsurprising surprise, members of Canada West's Catholic community rose in the House and demanded that they too should receive such reassurances. If the government would pass a bill to protect the Protestant minority in the eastern section, why not pass a bill to protect the Catholic minority in the West? What's good for the goose being good for the gander. If John A. Had, hadn't already been drinking, this demand from Catholics outside Canada East would have driven him to the bottle. For here, at the 11th hour, the religious divisions of the Canadas, the very things that the coalition government was created to stymie, threatened to bring the whole system down. The logic of equality made perfect sense, at least to someone like Darcy McGee and the Irish Catholic Assemblyman, as it did to many French Catholics. But to George Brown and Protestant Upper Canada, including, it needs to be said, many government supporters, the analogy was all wrong. Brown argued that there was no parallel between the educational systems in the two sections. Whereas the eastern section was specifically divided by religion, Upper Canada operated a non-denominational public school system, which were Christian but devoted to no particular denomination. Everyone was welcome. However, Catholics largely didn't accept this idea and still wanted their own separate schools, feeling that the non-denominational element in Upper Canada really only referred to Protestant denominations. The whole battle threatened to undermine the government and MacDonald and Cartier were essentially forced to backtrack. Facing the prospect of grievous divisions, they withdrew the original Protestant-focused bill. No one would receive extra protection. Now, this still came with costs, and Alexander Galt, the defender of lower Canadian Protestants, officially resigned in protest. Yet, even after the government dealt with this potential catastrophe, the Canadian delegates remained in Ottawa. They stayed there until just after the American elections that autumn, not boarding their ships until November of 1866 to finally join their maritime colleagues who had been waiting, yes, waiting for four months across the ocean. The delay was perplexing, although it's more explainable when you consider that the British government had itself fallen that summer. British politics in the mid-1860s actually looked a lot like British politics in the early 1830s, just before the Canadian rebellions. Once again, there was talk of the need of a great reform bill to reform the franchise. Too few householders had the vote, and there were too many corrupt boroughs returning members of parliament from tiny constituencies where other areas with a vastly larger populations received hardly any representation. So even as British North Americans fretted about confederation, the British were divided over voting rights. And it ought to be said that the franchise in British North America, while still exclusive by our standards, gave the vote to vastly more men than did the franchise in the UK, even after the reform bill that would come the next year. In the summer of 1866, the Conservatives under Derby and Disraeli replaced the Whig Liberal government. 
all of the British parties were in favor of British North American Confederation. So the switch was not a significant factor for union, but it did mean delay. The British Parliament would not likely meet again until January of 1867, so any agreement on British North American Union would have to be drafted as a bill to pass through British Parliament, and this couldn't happen until the new year. Ironically, the first of the British North Americans concerned with Confederation to arrive in Britain in 1866 was our old friend Joseph Howe, father of responsible government in Nova Scotia and embittered foe of Confederation. Howe wanted to make the point that even if the elected governments of the colonies were now all in favor of Confederation, that did not mean that the peoples of the colonies, most notably the colony of Nova Scotia, agreed with the scheme. And he brought with them all his arsenal of wit and charm to make the case, as well as petitions signed by tens of thousands of Nova Scotians prote protesting Confederation. How came to loyally protest? I am a British subject, he said just before he left. And for me, that includes free trade and a common interest with 50 provinces and 250 millions of people forming an empire too grand and too extensive for Paul's imagination to conceive. So why, he asked his audience, would he give up London and John Bull for the meager replacement of Ottawa under Jack Frost? Once in England, Howe set to work penning a pamphlet that, once finished, he delivered to everyone of notable interest and had published in papers both in England and British North America. The pamphlet was essentially an update of his botheration letters, pointing out Canada's history of discord and disloyalty, of rebellion, of attempted annexation with the United States, the burning of Parliament, the troublesome Canadian Orangemen, and essentially asking, and these are the people you want to hitch us to? Nova Scotia was a, was a maritime colony, perfectly defensible, linked by trade to the empire and the homeland, proud of its responsible government. Why take that away from us? And who led the whole scheme? Why, it was none other, none other than John A. Macdonald, the inebriated minister of militia who had so incompetently met the Fenian challenge that year. Surely the scheme was as befuddled as its originator. While the other Maritimers waited for the Canadians to arrive, they fenced words with Howe. Charles Tupper rushed off a pamphlet of his own, as did others. What this meant is that while the Canadians dithered in Ottawa, fighting over schools and fretting about the Fenians, the debate in London raged on about the feasibility of the deal itself. Yet the Canadians did finally arrive at the end of November of 1866, and the official London Conference the third in our, our trilogy of Confederation conferences began on the 4th of December at London's Westminster Palace Hotel. It was a much smaller affair than the others as the delegates from PEI and Newfoundland hadn't come. Even a, a last-minute venture from the other Maritimers to offer a sum of money to buy out PEI's landlords had not been enough to entice the islanders back into the deal. And the Newfoundlanders were pretending that Confederation wasn't even an issue. Yet in London, the delegates were men on a mission. Each side, though, had a slightly different mission. For the Maritimers, it meant showing that they had eked out some changes to improve upon the Quebec resolutions. 
In the Canadas, it was the opposite. The, leg their, the legislature had already approved the Quebec resolution, so they had to get a deal done while not significantly modifying the deal's essentials. And it should be said, both sides ultimately got what they wanted. The delegates went through the Quebec resolutions one by one, setting aside the controversial points to come back to later. But even these controversies proved not overly bothersome. The Maritimers wanted not only an insistence on the intercolonial railway, which they were getting, but they needed more money, more funds to be distributed to the local, that is, provincial governments. And this the Canadians agreed to. Then there was the matter of the upper chamber. Remember all of the fuss it had created back at Quebec? Well, now that PEI and Newfoundland weren't there, what would they do with the distribution of seats? In the end, they sort of forgot Newfoundland and just made provision that the maritime seats would be shared equally between Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, but that when or if PEI signed on to Confederation, it would receive its four seats and the other two maritime colonies would be reduced equally in size. The real controversy centered around the issue which had just so roiled the Canadian Parliament, religious schooling. Some delegates now insisted that they needed to enshrine a right of religious minorities to appeal to the national government in situations where the provinces infringed on their prerogatives. This would appease both someone like Alexander Galt, representing Quebec's Protestants, and the Catholics of what would soon be Ontario. Galt, by the way, may have resigned from cabinet, but he had way too much at stake in Confederation not to come to London. Ultimately, the delegates agreed to these requests, though in a fashion that was somewhat watered down, and it certainly didn't appease the Catholic Bishop of Halifax, Nova Scotia, who was hanging around London at the time and hoping to expand religious schooling rights in his own colony. Once the delegates came up with a workable agreement, they then needed to enshrine this into a bill, and that came with working through the colonial secretary, Lord Carnarvon. Macdonald, Cartier, and Galt met with Carnarvon and even spent a night at Carnarvon's country home to begin this process in mid-December. Now, fans of the television show Downton Abbey might be amused to know that this country home, Highclere Castle, is the massive stately home featured in that show. So Downton Abbey does have a sort of Canadian connection. I guess that's why you tune in uh, to this podcast to get out-of-date television references. The delegates ultimately finished with a draft to send to Carnarvon, and, and MacDonald, as head of the conference, sent it to him on Christmas Day of 1866. It was then printed to send to members of the government, and the bill would get its first reading in Parliament by mid-January of 1867. Of course, this quick retelling of events skips over two rather significant events in the life of one John A. MacDonald. First, on returning from Downton Abbey, sorry, I mean Car Carnarvon's estate, late on the evening of 12th December, MacDonald got into bed to read the papers by candlelight. He fell asleep, with the candle still burning. And it turns out that all the advice you've ever heard about not falling asleep with a candle burning is based on sound reasoning. For the next thing MacDonald knew, he woke up to an intense feeling of heat. Yes, that's right, the bed and curtains were on fire. He launched himself out of bed, yanked down the curtains and threw them on the floor along with the bedclothes and drained his water jug onto them. 
Then he raced to Cartier's and Galt's rooms. They were adjoining his, grabbed their water jugs, and did the same. They managed to squelch the fire, but at that point, MacDonald realized that he himself had been burnt on his hands and head and especially his shoulder. And before you ask, was he drunk? Is that why he did it? The answer is we just don't know, but it can't have been pleasant regardless. MacDonald continued with work for a few more days before he was forced to spend an extended period in bed over the Christmas break to recover. But the fire wasn't the only thing uh, to rile MacDonald's life. Just like George Brown several years earlier, it seems that John A. had found romance on this British sojourn. You'll remember that John A.'s wife had died almost a decade earlier. Ironically, the woman he now met was the sister of his secretary, Hewitt Bernard. The two did know each other, but only as acquaintances. Agnes Bernard had been living in London with her mother since the previous year, and the couple-to-be met by accident on the street while MacDonald was there for the conference. That's when the wooing began. So rapid was the romance that they decided to be married in London only a couple of months later in early February. For what it's worth, there was actually another romance brewing in London uh, by another delegate, but this one was both more long-standing and uh, somewhat more illicit. And that is between Georges-Etienne Cartier and his longtime mistress, Luce Cuvillier. Cartier had married into a prominent Patriot-supporting family early in his life, but seems to have never been happily married. By the 1860s, it was well known, but essentially verboten to speak publicly about the fact that he shared a a residence with his mistress, Cuvillier, and a trip to London must have offered them a sort of amount of privacy. So in other words, don't let those starched collars and unsmiling black and white portraits fool you. These were real-life men and women with passions and secrets, most of which remain unknown to us. But back to politics. The British North American Bill was read first in the House of Lords in late January before moving to the House of Commons. While it did generate some debate, including from some in the House who wondered about the fate of poor Nova Scotia, the bill won widespread support on all sides, if not a huge amount of excitement or interest. Remember, the Brits were really stirred by the issue of their own reform bill to come. The main change demanded by the British cabinet had been to insist on finding some way of creating new senators, new members of the upper chamber, to avoid a situation whereby the Senate could finally vote down bills that a majority in the House of Commons supported. John A. worked with the British to devise a scheme whereby the Prime Minister could appoint a fixed number of extra members from the different regions to overcome such an obstruction. For all the criticism some contemporary historians lay on those uh, of the era being undemocratic, it's striking that this is the change the British insisted upon, ensuring that the legislature representing the voice of the people, that of responsible government, would have the final say. Now, Once they had bolstered the foundations of responsible government in this fashion, the bill moved through the houses in February and into March. The British and North American delegates stayed around to make sure it passed, somewhat anxious, but they needn't have worried. The Queen signed the act into law on the 29th of March, 1867. They had created a new country, a new nation, at least sort of. What, though, 
did they call it? The first part was clear. The, the new United Confederation would be called Canada. And it was the maritime delegates in a show of magnanimity who moved the resolution at the London Conference. But what was it? Was it, was it a country? Was it a nation? Remember that the new federation would still not be entirely sovereign. Britain retained control of external relations, of matters of treaties and war. There was no such thing as Canadian citizenship. All Canadians were British subjects. So what to call this sort of in-between country? If the delegates had got their way, it would have been simple. The Kingdom of Canada. What better way to signify their intentions to have created a monarchical constitutional parliamentary government in North America than to create a kingdom to be part of Britain's empire. Alas, several British officials, including apparently the Queen, had conniptions about the idea of a kingdom in North America. They warned that it would offend the United States by, quote, opening a monarchical blister on the side of the Americans. Our old friend Leonard Tilly, he of the New Brunswick Prohibition Bill fame, had another suggestion. One morning in London, while doing his daily reading of the King James Version of the Bible, he was inspired by Psalm 22, where it says, He shall have dominion also from sea to sea, and from the river unto the ends of the earth. Well, what about it, Tilly wondered. How about dominion? The other delegates saw the merit, though Cartier and the French Canadians worried it didn't translate well into French. The British, though they weren't especially keen, agreed that it would do. And so the new country that was created via the British North American Act of 1867 was called the Dominion of Canada. John A. Macdonald and Georges-Étienne Cartier and a few others remained in London after the bill passed to plan the future. Lord Monk would be returning to Canada for another stint as Governor General, and he had asked John A. Macdonald to serve as Canada's first Prime Minister. There would need to be an election uh, in the summer, but for now, to move forward in advance of the election, Monk selected Macdonald to form Her Majesty's first government in Canada. I say that Monk selected him, which is technically true, but he did so only after kind of canvassing opinion amongst the delegates at the London Conference itself. And the delegates believed Macdonald was the man for the job. Why Macdonald? Why not Cartier or Tilly or even George Brown back in Canada, but still with a following? Certainly other leaders were possible, and part of the reason we see Macdonald as a natural choice comes from the fact that he had so much later success, remaining in power with one exceptional period in the mid-1870s until his death in 1891. Perhaps the best line to explain why Macdonald comes from the pen of Hector Langevin, another father of Confederation, spokesperson for the Tory French Canada, who went on to have an incredibly successful, though admittedly fairly corrupt, career in national politics. Langevin wrote about all of the delegates at the London Conference, assessing their strengths and often the weaknesses of each. On Macdonald, Langevin wrote, he is, quote, a sly fox. He's well-briefed, subtle, adroit, and popular. He is the man of the conference. Langevin wasn't alone. It was hard not to admire Macdonald's charm, the way he could ingratiate himself with even those who had once considered him a foe. But Macdonald also knew the importance of loyalty, of rewarding friends. 
As I've mentioned before in this podcast, when he arrived at Charlottetown in 1864 for that conference, he had jokingly scribbled in the guest book, where it asked his occupation, cabinet maker. Well, Monk took him at his word and asked Macdonald to come up with the first Canadian cabinet. It would be an even trickier job than Canada alone. There were now four provinces to draw from, trying to get a mix of leaders from each region and representing all of the different factions across the country, Catholics and Protestants, Cartier and the French Canadians, but also the English Quebecers and the Maritimers. Each sector insisted on being represented in the government. And when would it all begin? The Queen's official declaration in May pronounced a a national holiday for the 1st of July, 1867. This was to be the first national holiday, a day of celebration when the new dominion would officially come into existence. Depending on who you asked, it was either a special or an unremarkable day. No doubt some woke and attended to their chores without noticing much. But in each of the major towns across the dominion, the garrisons fired their martial salutes of cannon and musket fire. Crowds gathered under what was then jointly the Canadian and British flag, the Union Jack. The shops were closed and picnic celebrations dotted the countryside. Fireworks lit up the night sky and newspapers heralded the birth of a new nation. Well, most did. In the Maritimes, not all were happy. One Halifax paper published its Dominion Day edition with a notice not of birth, but rather of death. It reads, quote, Died last night at 12 o'clock, the free and enlightened province of Nova Scotia. Deceased was the offspring of old English stock and promised to prove an honor and support to her parents in their declining years. Her death was occasioned by unnatural treatment at the hands of some of her ungrateful sons. And there it is. Apparently you can't make a Canadian omelette without breaking a few maritime eggs. Thanks so much for listening to this, our penultimate episode of Season 2. That's it. Canada is now created. Confederation is done. Although, of course, Canada had already existed and politics never ends. No sooner did the celebrations end than the politicians began to campaign for the autumn election. For while the Governor-General may have selected a Prime Minister, the voters would have their say. And George Brown remained on the scene, trying to build a National Reform Party to rival that of Macdonald's party. Out East, Joseph Howe and the anti-Confederates, now calling themselves the Repealers, well, they organized to get themselves elected to the new Parliament with the purpose of tearing it all down. And the Rouge in Quebec, led by Dorian, still questioned the validity of the whole operation. Politics doesn't end. And this isn't even to mention the lure of the West, the small lines in the British North America Agreement, which had called for the new nation to spread westward, to purchase the lands of the Hudson's Bay Company. That was a dream easy to put down on paper, which promised more than a few complications. Even now, a young theological student named Louis Riel had left Montreal and was working in the United States, soon to return to his homeland in the Métis settlements in the West. And in Louis Riel, we have someone who some now call a father of Confederation, founder of Manitoba, surely, 
but with a very big difference from the others. That story, though, of resistance and rebellion is for season three. We still have one more episode to go. Next week, we'll try to make sense of what has just happened. We began with Protestant Catholic fights in the 1850s with sectional tensions and calls for rep by pop. We've ended with the creation of a new nation. How are we to make sense of this long period of the 1850s and 1860s, which led ultimately to the creation of the Dominion of Canada? As always, if you enjoy what you're hearing, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you really, really like the show, please consider become, becoming an 1867 and all that patron. All of the details, including the link to our Patreon site, can be found in today's show's notes. And although we finished today's show decidedly in 1867, remember there's still a lot of all that to 1867 and all that.